0: The Weekly Hugh Demon. Full steam ahead. If you want an like intellectual experience that's kind of a wild ride, check out the 1908 book by G.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy. It's widely considered like a classic of modern Catholic apologetics. Even though Justin wrote it like 15 years before he became Catholic, it's an excellent book. Frustrating little book. It's filled with paradox and sudden twists and turns and lots of uh, detours. <laughs> he kind of rambles the points, but, but but check it out. I definitely encourage you to sit down and wrestle with it, maybe for a couple weeks. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because in chapter two, he he talks about a thing he calls the maniac. He talks about why it's basically so so hard to deal with the maniac. He goes because people think maniacs are insane in the sense that they're wildly illogical, or whatever. He goes that's that's not that's not true at all. He goes a maniac is very very logical. The problem with the maniac, he has this very narrow worldview or this one or two facts, quote unquote facts, they latches onto, and then everything feeds into that box. Get to him. You have to kind of smash the box. And it's a tight little box because it, it's a real narrow worldview. And he said that's what makes the maniac so hard to reason with is because he's reasoned it through based on his worldview, his one or two quote-unquote facts. How how can you get around that? I mean, any evidence you give him to the contrary, is just going to feed back into <laughs> his premise. So if I go to him and say, look, I've been your friend for years, um, I'm not to get you. And he'll be like, yeah, that's exactly what you would say. Because you're now part of the conspiracy to get me. So anything you say to this guy is he can either explain it away with his one or two principles that, you know, are too narrow to encompass all of reality. Or, worse, it feeds back into his old, his old, his old, his old theory. Yeah, that's exactly what you'd say, Shesky, because you're out to get me. And everyone's out to get me, therefore everyone's going to deny it. So of course you just, you just said exactly what you'd say if you're part of it. Thereby, substantiating my theory. Okay. Now, take that maniac and expand it. Let's say there are a group of maniacs. You know, there's about a thousand of you, whatever. It's the exact same concept. It's everyone's out to get us. Or maybe it's a bunch of people are out to get us. And here, here's what I want you to start latching on to what, what I'm trying to make you see. When you have this stilted type thinking, so you have this group of maniacs, they have their their little box, their little worldview, and they all ascribe to this little worldview. And then through this worldview, they basically break people up into three types. Uh You got the people who are out to get us, so you have the they, and you have the us. And then you might have a third type of person, if they're not completely nuts, who will think that, like, well... There, there are people out there like Shusky who's not out to get us, but he's ignorant. So he doesn't understand like we understand it, that they're out to get us. Uh, he's not actually out there to get us, so he's innocent. But, you know, he, he's, he's maybe part of the problem because he doesn't understand what, what we understand. Furthermore, when you have that group of maniacs, often the they is gonna be vague. If you can actually really define who they is as out to get them, and this is absolutely crucial. If you can put that they on trial, identify them by name, you can explode their worldview. So it's always gotta be vague. Okay. This is very close to conspiracy theorists. I mean, think about it. Okay, you have a, you have a conspiracy theorist, you have like the three types of people, you got us who understand that the conspiracy, you know, what's going on here, you know, the Bilderberg Society or nine eleven, whatever it is, you have the they, the conspirators who are out for this nefarious, insidious purpose, what they're trying to do, world domination whatever it is. And then you got the dupes. You got the Sheskis out there who don't understand the conspiracy. Yes, um he's not one of the conspirators, that's good, he's innocent in that sense, but it's frustrating that he doesn't see it like we see it. And then everything you try to tell them, you know, to try to explode their theory of the conspiracy. It doesn't work because it just feeds back into you know their their little worldview, their little box of reality. And again, I use reality in quotes. You know, so you you try to point out that hey, we got we got pictures of the moon landing, and they're like yeah, it's all doctored. You know, and for like, it's kind of you know they explain it away as being doctored, or you know, it feeds back into the whole conspiracy theory. It's like yeah, those are actually very very good pictures. Therefore, there must be people at the various highest levels perpetuating this moon landing hoax because they are very sophisticated and they're very broadly published and therefore that shows there is indeed a very vast conspiracy to push the whole moon landing. And it's like, man, how, you know, it's it's really hard to deal with those people. It's exhausting. <laughs> and that'd be kind of, I'd say the fourth thing about the, the the group of maniacs or the conspiracy people is, you know, the fourth characteristic is they're exhausting. So again, the, the four crucial characteristics is there's three types of people, the they, us, and the innocent. Uh, the they is always amorphous. You can't really identify it. You can't put it on trial. You can't punish them. It's always just very vague and shadowy. Three, they're very logical. They have their one or two quote-unquote facts. They have their little box worldview of, of reality. And within that, they're very logical. And it's very hard to penetrate, to smash that box, to get into that box. And four, that is freaking <laughs> exhausting to deal with. In all of this, you have the whole theory of white privilege. I mean, you basically have the group of maniacs and the conspirators all rolled into one. I mean, let's look at it. And you got the three types of people. And you got the us, they, and the innocent. So, the person of color who says, you know, you just don't, you know, you don't get it, uh, there's this, there's this, whole system, and you guys are privileged, you don't understand, this everyday life, whether it's not being stopped by a cop, or someone crossing the street when they see you walking towards you, whatever it is, you just don't see it. So you're like, you're, you might be innocent in the sense that you're not persecuting us, but someone is, so you have the they who are persecuting us, you got us who are being persecuted, and you got the innocent. Now, if you're a white person, by the way, and you buy into this, you're close to like the conspiracy people. Okay, because you're saying there is a they who are persecuting. There's this overall conspiracy to persecute them, and and we see it, you know. And there's maybe those who those who don't see it, you know, the innocence. But they they similarly they divide people into three types of people as well. And again, here it's a little bit a little bit different because there's three or four different people depending on whether you're white and you buy into the whole white privilege concept, or whether you're black and you buy into the white privilege concept. Anyway, but but secondly. You got the amorphous they. <laughs> you know, with white privilege, theoretically, I believe it ties back into the thoughts of D. Saussure. He is a structuralist philosopher who basically said there, there really is no objective truth. All you have is a web of words and they all relate to each other. And these words then form uh, like a societal construct and everything operates within that construct. And over the course of three or four hundred years of white hegemony because of Europe's power, and just dis- dis- let's face it, disproportionate power on the world stage since about fifteen hundred through gunpowder or whatever else. They have this white structure that privileges whites over blacks and people of color. Well, it doesn't get much more amorphous or vague than that. I mean, you have an enemy there that really is just too vague to, you know to even to even name. So again, you have that, that amorphous enemy, you got that like in spades with the whole white privilege concept. And then, most importantly, logically, you, you can't get to them. Everything you say to the contrary, the person who buys into the whole white privilege conspiracy theory, if you buy into that theory, anything you tell them to the contrary, they can either explain it away or it's more evidence. So, if you have some guy who says, "Hey, look at my dad left my mom when I was, you know, five years old, and we had to scrape for everything we had, and I have busted my hump and put myself through college." And now I have a wife, and I have two kids, and I've scraped together this $20,000 of the savings. And it's like, yeah, exactly. And because you're white, because the way the structure is set up in your favor, you're able to rise above your horrible beginnings. That's why you're able to do it. So don't tell us that's evidence that there is no white privilege. You know, the fact that you were crapped on your entire life and had to work for every pen you have. That's not... That doesn't refute white privilege, that just shows white privilege because you're able to pull it off whereas a black guy couldn't. To be honest with you, I don't know how they explain the way the many black people who've done similar things <laughs> you know, uh Joe Rogan will often have him on his, his show, uh black guys who are obviously making it. Well, I mean Dave Dave Chappelle, I think is I think he puts himself out there as, you know, he says he is very poor. His his recent Netflix special, by the way, is freaking hilarious. Um it's like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to explain it away. Dave Chappelle, maybe he thinks like a white guy, or whatever. Their free it's part of white privilege. I'm not sure, but anyway, whatever, whatever you tell them, they explain away in this whole this little worldview of white privilege, and you, you you can't penetrate it. And then the fourth trait is it's exhausting. <laughs> I had been asked a couple of times, "Hey, you should address this whole concept of white privilege," and I'm just like. Oh man, yeah, but it's, it's just gonna be so freaking exhausting to lay it out. And be honest with you, I had to start this segment of the podcast three times to get it right because it's just dealing with these idiots is just really, really tiring and you gotta work it through. But, you know, I, I, the bottom line is I'd say epistemologically speaking, you know, their theory of knowledge, how they think, what they see, it's extremely similar to the conspiracy theorists. And also to the group of maniacs, as as Cheston would have envisioned it. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I'm talking like, <laughs> literally technical sense. Chapter two of Orthodoxy: the white privileged people are like the maniac and the conspiracy people combined. You're you're maniacs if you're like of color and feel like you're persecuted. That puts you in like in the group of maniacs. But if you're a white person, you're you're like the uh, the conspiracy theorists. You, know, you don't personally feel persecuted because you're part of the privilege. But you see it, and you see this big conspiracy out there. And again, very exhausting to deal with. I, I want to get into other problems with white privilege. I'll probably say that to next week. This segment's going on too long already. Alright, let's do some lightning segments. Hey, I'm going to start off by plugging a book I've already plugged once, maybe twice. But I'm going to plug it times five right now. I'm going to nominate this book as the greatest history book of all time. <laughs> what I mean by that is it's, it's it's funny. It's exceedingly well written. It's pithy. It's easy to read front to back or pick up and read at random. It's heavily biographical, which I enjoy. And I'm talking about Bill Kaufman's Look Homeward, America. I started picking this book up again a couple weeks ago and reading from it. And it's probably the third, fourth, fifth time I've picked it up and read it. I read it front to back when I first got it. Just loved it. And I've been going back and reading it ever since. But it is it is just a great, great book. On top of all those other traits, it has a, it has a trait that it, it'll bust your worldview. Or your American view, I should say. It's all about America. What it means to be an American. And it's going to open up to you. A whole line of thinking and a whole way of being American that you're just not going to see today. And if you're like me, when I first read this book when I was like 40, 45 years old, I wasn't even really aware of. Actually, I was because I've always I've always been kind of a student of political philosophy, so I'm very acquainted with like uh, the 1920s and 30s conservatism. Um, Albert J. Knock and things like that. So I was somewhat versed in this area, but but not like this, not the way Bill Kaufman brings it together. I just highly, highly urge you to get it. I think it'll expand your view of what it means to be an American. You know, and I'll tell you right now what it kind of stands for is Kaufman say you got the people on the left who hate America. You know, they look at it as just an extension of European colonialism and white privilege or whatever you have, and they want to tear down what America is. But that doesn't mean you have to go bomb the hell out of the third world countries and engage in all these foreign wars. It probably just means we kind of need to keep to ourselves more, be a little more modest, be a little more humble. And so this is is like a third way. Yeah, so Bill Kaufman's not a leftist by any stretch. But at the same time, he applauds people like Dorothy Day who acknowledge there are some questions here about how America is where it is today. Why America is doing the things it's doing today, whether it's dropping the bomb on Hiroshima <laughs> or, or beating the living hell out of Afghanistan for 20 years, whatever it is, because you know these things can be questioned without becoming a bad American. Because then you got the people on the far right. I don't say far right; just say on the right, who base their terms. Oh, we got to have this, this, this strong military and got beat the hell out of the rural countries because they're out to get us. And it's just like let's not do that either. Anyway, so Kaufman kind of explodes this whole this whole American dichotomy as I see it today, this is like a third way of looking at things. Again, Look Homeward America by Bill Kaufman. I think you'll love it. Hey, big news. Duolingo now has a Latin program. (laughs) So for all you papists out there, go download the Duolingo Latin program. I actually self-taught myself a semester of Latin back when I was in college. Don't remember hardly anything, so I downloaded it, took the first lesson. Yeah, anything like Duolingo, it's, it's really easy and it's pretty cool, so definitely recommend it. Maybe you can go to some of those Latin masses and actually follow along a little bit. So, daughter Meg is a freshman at Hillsdale College, and here it is Labor Day weekend, and she has classes on Labor Day. <laughs> Hillsdale does not recognize Labor Day as a holiday, that just kills me. Yeah, you know, Labor Day is like uh, a, a movement of big labor. You know, the AFL, CIO, things like that. Definitely a very leftward-leaning holiday, to say the least. Now, I will say, it's it's not as bad as many people think. I believe it came in under Grover Cleveland, who was pretty conservative. And there's the worker movement, the socialist movement, wanted to be May Day. Just like in Communist Russia, they want to establish a May Day holiday here in America. And Grover Cleveland's like, We ain't having that. <laughs> but there was this pressure to have some sort of holiday. So he said, Hey, first Monday of September, we'll have Labor Day. But it ain't the socialist type of Labor Day. It's more of a celebration of everyone who works type thing. So it's kind of a compromise. But it was still, it was a compromise with communists. And so I'm guessing Hill College will have nothing to do with it. In that vein, I always go on to work at least a little bit on Labor Day, just out of spite. <laughs> Hey, big news from all my homosexual listeners. <laughs> Marvel's going to have its first openly gay superhero. <laughs> I don't even want to imagine like, what his superpower is. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is the Marvel superhero thud. He goes, whack! One guy says, you know, <laughs> so, you know a, a, a gay superhero is like the, the mind boggles and the anus quivers. <laughs> sorry, sorry. If that's over the top for you, but so many jokes, so little time, and I and I try to keep this this uh, podcast you know somewhat uh somewhat urbane. And I realize I probably just failed big time, but <laughs> kind of reminds me of Justin. He, he wrote a uh, essay something about in praise of, of the buffoon or something like that. Where he's <laughs> basically talking about how. You know, you got kind if you if you have something you want to say and you think you have something to impart to people, you may have to make it funny in order to do it. And that's uh, <laughs> that's why I kind of try, try to do that here. And I find myself, quite frankly, um, often wanting to entertain or make people laugh. And I'm not sure what that is. I don't know if it's narcissistic or uh, a desire to please people, whatever it is. But my apologies if the humor ever like, goes over the top for you. So a listener to this podcast tells me he just had his first baby. And he says, it's kind of bummer, it was a real rough pregnancy, or r- really rough labor, like over 48 hours. And finally they said, look, we got to take the baby, so he had to have a C-section. And he's asking about it, I told him, well, not so Maria, I said, our first baby was C-section, then we had six more, um, all vaginal. I said, it wasn't, wasn't a big deal at all. I mean, it's, it's a concern, but... No. and he was really relieved to hear that. And I said, I said you know, it's, it's going to be kind of disconcerting." And I'm going to warn you right now is when, when my second kid was born, Abby, when she was on her way, that nurses are running around, really concerned, saying, "You know, we got a VBAC. We have a VBAC. You know, VBAC this, VBAC that." And my family was like, "What? What the frick is VBAC?" They kept saying that term. I had no idea what they're talking about. they said, "Oh, VBAC, VBAC. It's vaginal birth after cesarean." And I was like, that's it? I said, what's the big deal? She and I had VSAC. (laughs) Hey, a note I meant to make last week when I saw Mackinac Island. If you're at a hotel, you need to tip the chambermaids. Always leave money. If you believe in tipping at all, tip the chambermaids. For some reason, I've had... Um, a large number of hotel clients uh, just kind of top heavy I mean, how many hotels I've, I've re- represented over the past 25 years in my practice and I've reviewed like the economics to run in a hotel and one thing's become very clear to me the cleaning ladies the people you see work in those rooms they're at the very bottom of this, of this economy's pay structure I, mean, I remember one guy telling me point blank he goes yeah well a good chambermaid she can make as much as 10 bucks an hour you know she's really diligent and she works hard you know, not counting you know, not counting tips because they get paid by the room. So it on how what type, what type of shape you leave your room. That plays into how much she makes. In, in that regard, by the way, don't trash your room. That's just a total dick thing to do. Try to leave it reasonably neat. These women get paid piece rate. They get paid per room. The more trash you leave your room, the less money they make, and they ain't making much money to begin with. So also leave a tip. Um, I try to leave five bucks and then whatever changes in the room. If you, if you want a a reference. <laughs> you might be thinking Just, that's nothing. It's like, well, yeah, but you got know, to see the dives I stay in. That's <laughs> like It's like half the night's rent. Hey, I don't know what it is with Skittles, but they are grossing me out. You know, first off, for years now, they've had that that advertisement with those two kids standing there and that kid has Skittles all over his face and she picks off this thing and eats it like a scab, that's just gross as hell. It's like, ah, oh, gosh, that's just disgusting. And now they have an advertisement where they show some dude apparently milking a giraffe, but you don't see him milking it, all you can see is hands down near the giraffe's genitals and then pushing out a, a skittle and popping his mouth. And for all I can tell, it's coming out of his dick or something. It's just, it's just like, what? Who is doing the Skittles commercials to turn my stomach? First off, he has something coming out of the, the giraffe's genitals that he's popping in his mouth. And then another one, this girl's eating a scab off some dude's face. Whoever, whoever's doing the Skittles marketing, man, they, they got to get their head examined. I mean, I don't think I'll ever eat, eat a Skittles the rest of my life. So I'm seeing more and more references to young people being drawn to socialism. <laughs> one article I read talked about how the An Rand Society, the Objectivist Society, is having troubles finding young acolytes because they're not interested in capitalism and Objectivism anymore; they're more interested in socialism. And it just really astounds me. Uh, I, so I'm listening earlier this week to a, a lecture on Marxism, one I listened to a couple of times, and I guess I never appreciated this lecture. Who seems like a pretty decent guy. But he says, you yeah, know, I know socialism has been thoroughly discredited, you know, because of the USSR and, you know, Pol Pot and China, etc., etc., But, you know, it's a fair question to ask Has, you know, Marxism really been tried? He goes, and I, I don't think it really has. He goes, because Marx, he himself would have been appalled by the, you know, the, uh, the despotic regimes of Stalin and Mao. He goes, he would have been appalled by it. He goes, Marx was for freedom and human flourishing, and he would have been appalled. At what Stalin did, he was So you can't say that, you know, his system was really tried. And, I, and this guy's a college professor, and I'm just like, yeah. And, and, and by the way, not a nutty college professor, not like someone like some of these nut jobs I hear about at Duke University and Harvard. I this I forget the guy's name, but he seemed like a pretty decent guy. And I was like, well, yeah, you can. And the best analogy I come up with is like, you know, Rachel Ray comes up with this delicious cookie, and it just looks absolutely freaking great. And people bake it, and then people get really freaking sick, and some people die. And then it happens over and over again. it's like, let's, let's, let's break apart this these ingredients, and what what the frick is in it. And it turns out, you know, you have in it hemlock, strychnine, QRA, and arsenic. Okay? <laughs> and th- that's kind of what marxism is it's like no we don't need to try it again the death the suffering the poverty it is baked into the product all those things are baked into marxism just like arsenic or curare or hemlock or strychnine would be into just a horrible horrible cookie recipe Okay, so you say, okay, Shesky, so what, what the frick you talking about? You know, because I, I tell you right now, by the way, I'm talking like close, to like an allegory, like a, dr- <laughs> a direct parallel here. Not just, um, just not, just not an analogy. I'm, I'm talking, these are things that are really close. And it's like, you can't have a free and flourishing society under Marxism any more than you can have a healthy cookie with strychnine and arsenic. So I say there's four things, and there's probably more than that, but four things I can think of that are baked into the ingredients of in Marxism that makes it poison. First off, politics. You know, Marxist was a political philosopher. Yes, he engaged in some metaphysical philosophy, uh, his concept of alienation. I actually kind of buy into it a little bit. I hate to say it. <laughs> but... It- He was first and foremost a political revolutionary. He took concrete steps to bring about the revolution. He wanted politics to take over. So if you want politics, you want to put men in power to make men free, that's like putting arsenic in the cookie to make it taste good, you know, to make people healthier. If you had the government in power with guns, then the people under them are not going to be free. I mean, it's that simple. So, right, right in the very first premise, it's, it's baked right in there. It ain't gonna work. Cause you're putting government in power through political means to make people free. And once men are in power, being fallen human beings, they're never gonna give up that power. So, that's, I'd say the hemlock in the system. Okay, the strychnine. The strychnine? That's Lenin. I mean, even Marx, too. In fact, I gotta do a, a segment on what a son of bitch Marx was. Uh, but. Uh, it, this length. this one's going to be too long as it is. But you look at Lenin. Lenin was just a son of a bitch. The guy himself was a mass murderer and had a network of spies. The problem is when you have a political system like that where everything has to be seized for the good of the common man, the person who thinks himself worthy to do it is going to be a prick. <laughs> and this is the type of dude you wouldn't want in charge of your intramural basketball league. That is the type of son of a bitch you're dealing with here. You don't want this type of person in charge. The person who thinks he's smart enough, powerful enough, strong enough, charismatic enough, whatever it is, if he has that high of opinion that he thinks he can take the reins of power and bring about the selfless society and remake mankind, that's the type of son of a bitch you don't want to have control over anything. So I'd say that's like the strychnine in the system. The person who pulled this off has to be a son of a bitch. The Chiare the third type of poison, is you have to abolish private property. That's a huge freaking deal, folks. I mean, you really think about abolishing private property, you don't have anything left. Private property is the great bulwark against government oppression. If you don't have private property, government oppression is that much more likely. So again, baked right into the ingredients. And the fourth thing, the arsenic. And this one's a little more involved, but If you have central planning like you do in a Marxist system where you have the government take over everything, you're getting rid of the pricing mechanism. And here you're getting into, you know, some Austrian economics and you may be, you know, kind of lost in the weeds, but you gotta understand the importance of the pricing mechanism. It can't be controlled. It is what it is. And it sends information out to a huge network of mankind. You know, the whole United States economy, the world economy with its millions of facets, it all relies on the pricing system to tell you what's working, what's not, how much to charge, how to allocate resources. It tells you how to do that if you don't have the pricing mechanism and central planning by its nature gets rid of it because it allocates resources where the head honcho, you know, the, The dude in charge of the intramural basketball league. (laughs) That resources go where he tells it to go, not what the pricing mechanism is saying where it should go. And that's huge. And as the pricing mechanism breaks down under central planning, the central planner has to get more and more oppressive to shove his ideas into the forefront. He has to get more and more tyrannical. That is, by the way, Hayek's Road to Serfdom. Always worth, always worth checking out. Anyway, so, like I said, I... (laughs) <laughs> socialism cannot be tried. Marxism cannot be tried again. You know, we have... We, we just don't need another 100, 200 million people dead. <laughs> we just don't need it. And if the fact that young people are, you know, are are embracing socialism is just shocking. It reminds me, by the way, of Thanos and the Avengers Endgame, or not Endgame. I forget what it's called. Um, you know, the Avengers movie Thanos wins out. It was like a shock poll where something like 30% of youth thought thanos was right he needed to do that i have zero proof for this but i'll bet a hundred bucks i'll give you a four to one odds my hundred bucks your 25 bucks that there is a humongous overlap between the people the young people who thought thanos was onto something and those who think socialism is worth trying again <laughs> you because know, you want to try socialism again i'm just like what a hundred million dead isn't enough for you I'm like, well, yeah, but, you know, it's worth trying. You know, yeah, another $100 million might die, but we might be get it right this time. It's like Thanos may have been right, you know, to, to wipe out half of mankind. Again, it's scary, but I don't think it's a big coincidence that a significant portion of young people are ready to try socialism, and a significant portion of young people thought Thanos was onto something. Highly, highly troubling. All right, that's a wrap for this week. Please follow us on Twitter, check out the Facebook page, go to the blog, check out youdemonpodcast.com. There's all sorts of information over there that you might find interesting. As always, thanks for listening.